We are continuing our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. Today's passage is 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of his authority over us. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Craig, one of the elders here. We're continuing our series through 1 Corinthians. We're just going systematically through the book, and we're hitting on a variety of hot topics, including today. I'm really thankful for God's Word. I'm thankful we can trust it. Um, one of the things I'd like to say, a couple things I want to just re- reiterate to you at the outset of things. One is, um, one of the things we like to say around here is Romans 15:7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. There's a lot of different ways and places that you can see God's glory on display. You can go to maybe something majestic in creation, or you can, you can read something from his word. But one way that we see God's glory on display is right here, week in, week out, when we welcome one another in the same way that Jesus Christ has welcomed us. We welcome each other as fellow sinners who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We want you to know um, that if you are new here, you're, you're welcome here. If you're not a Christian, you're welcome here. If you're a lifelong Christian, you're welcome here. This is a place where we want to introduce you to our Savior, the Savior of the world, the greatest man who ever lived, the one you were designed to know and love who you're created for. We want you to know him. I say that at the outset because we are going to touch on some some more difficult things today, Um, some heavier topics, not only today, but in the coming weeks. 1 Corinthians, I remember uh, hearing in some of my seminary classes that uh, seminary professors would say, hey, when you preach 1 Corinthians, tell me, I'll pray for you. It's going to be a tough one. There's a reason why. The Corinthian church is honestly kind of a mess. But I think what the truth is, is in a lot of ways, when we look in our own lives, if we're honest, there are things that, we're, that are messy. And we need Jesus to come and redeem those things. We need him to come bring new life to those things. So I just want to say from the outset that you're welcome here. If you feel messy, if you're not a Christian, if you are a Christian, if you're a struggling Christian, you're welcome here. You're in the right place. The Spirit of God is at work here. Um, the other thing. There were two things. What was the other thing? 
Well, maybe that, that was the only thing. We'll just stick with that for now. I was reading um, recently, uh, one of my sons is, is into some more fantasy-type novels, and it reminded me of um, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. There's one of the books of the Chronicles of Narnia called The, the Horse and His Boy. Oh, yeah, The Horse and His Boy. And what that book is about, um, it's, it follows an orphan boy named Shasta, whose background is shrouded in mystery. We don't know where he's coming from, but he's about to be sold. At the beginning of the book, he's about to be sold into slavery. So Shasta ends up escaping from his, cap- his would-be captors with a talking horse named, named Bree. They travel together towards Bree's homeland of Narnia. And along the way, Shasta comes to discover that not only is he also from that same region of Narnia, but he is in fact a prince, the long-lost son of King Loon of Arkenland. And as the story grows, uh, draws to a close, King Loon has been reunited with his son, and he speaks to him about what he'll need to catch up on in order to be the rightful king of that land, the future ruler of that place. He's learned a lot already through what he's faced on his trials that led him up to that point. But the king, what he does is he takes him all over the estate and the castle, and he shows, shows him all the, the strengths and the weaknesses of, of the castle itself. He talks about how to fight, how to retreat, how to live in plenty, how to live in lack. And what the king is doing at that moment is he is preparing his son for the calling that awaits him. So brothers and sisters, this is why this is I wanted to start with that story because I want to frame what we're about to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 1 through 11. Do you know that we're like Shasta, like this boy? That we will one day reign with Christ. Maybe you don't even know what that means. That's okay. We'll we'll unpack a little bit of that today. Do you know though that you are a ruler in training? We have much to learn. We have much to grow in to be equipped for such a great calling. And today's passage is meant to help equip you and me for that future role, to be rulers, the kings and queens, so to speak, of a future indestructible kingdom, the place where Jesus reigns, where there's no more suffering, sorrow, or sickness, or even death. And we will reign over that good kingdom alongside our high high king, Jesus, forever. That's where we're headed. All, if, you, if you have trusted in Christ, that is your destiny. But before we get there, that is, in the kingdom with Jesus, we have some training to undertake, and this passage shows us, in particular, a place we must grow as God's people. If you're going to summarize kind of the main idea, at least um, kind of where we're headed today, it'd be this. We must rule on our small grievances with one another, We must rule on our small grievances with one another here in the church because we will rule over much greater things in God's coming kingdom. We must rule on our small grievances with one another here in the church because we will rule over much greater things in God's coming kingdom. That might not grip you exactly right. It's okay. We're going to unpack it because it is a truly beautiful thing. It's a weighty thing. It's an important thing. So let's ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Lord, um, we need you. I need you. Um, Just, I'm I'm tired. (laughs) I'm having trouble even just collecting my thoughts right now, but I know that your spirit is at work here. And I know you work through weak people like me. And so we just pray that you would come and 
and work in all of our hearts. We all need to hear from you. We all want to hear from your word. We often miss the, the high calling that you've put in our lives, who we are in you. One day we're going to reign with you. Help us to prepare today for that great day. Make us more like Jesus, our perfect ruler, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so chapter 6 opens, especially the first eight verses, if we're just focusing on those, it, it starts by saying to us this, handle our small grievances, church, handle your small grievances in the church as opposed to in the world's courts. Let me show you that, verses 1 and 2. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it. We're going to be going right through the text today. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2. I'll read those for you again right now. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Okay, we're going to stop there. Here's what I want to first understand. At least the first question that comes to my mind. What kind of grievances is Paul talking about here? Like, Is it just any kind of grievance or a specific kind? Well, here's the first thing to notice. Notice in verse 1 it says it's a grievance against another. This is something that comes up between a couple people, a couple people in the church, something that requires outside justice or clarity, and they can't seem to agree about their situation, whatever it is. That's the first thing to notice. It's between people in the church. Second, into verse 2, it says, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Trivial cases. This is not talking about something specific. Uh, I'm sorry. Not talking about something significant, something that might be classified as criminal in nature. Criminal cases would be more like violence or theft or arson, something that would require jail time. These are civil court matters related to money or property-related issues. So let me try to give you a practical example because I know if you guys are like me, my mind would be spinning to like, does it mean this? Does it mean that? Does it mean this? Here's a little simple example. Imagine someone in the church asks another person in the church to come do some work on their house. The work is not good. And a disagreement arises. That's kind of like what Paul has in mind. Something simple like this. It would be a trivial matter. And that's an important distinction to make. I just want to say this. When it comes to criminal issues inside or outside the church, God has set up secular authorities to execute justice. If, you, if one of you would come to one of the elders, for example with a criminal issue, that is like physical abuse, just as an example, that wouldn't be dealt with merely in-house. It wouldn't be dealt with just in the church. We would help you seek whatever options you have available to you through the government for your protection and for justice to happen. That is the right thing to do in those situations. Something else to notice about these particular grievances that Paul's talking about here. If you look at the culture of that time, in, so we're talking about like first century Corinth, it was kind of a thing to do, to take these small grievances into court. It was a bit of a pride issue because the rich would be able to leverage their money and be able to get the verdict that they wanted to. But it was also a bit of a sport, like uh, trying to win. I mean, honestly, you know what it made me think about? Judge Judy. That's what, that's what makes me think about Judge Judy. It's some sort of, kind of a little bit of a, a show, a little bit of a game, um, petty things that could be solved between people if they would just be able to sit down with each other. Verse 6 says this, 
But brother goes to law against brother. So if we're rounding out the picture of what's the grievance here that Paul's talking about, we got two Christians at odds with one another about trivial court issues, trivial civil issues. Okay, so here's the second question. What does it look like to resolve these trivial cases in the church? Look at verses 4 through 6. So if you have such cases, I'm reading starting at verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? The implication of verse 4 is instead of taking it to the courts, we should lay these issues before people inside the church. That's what's being instructed here. As far as how to handle these trivial issues, bring them to the church. Taking them before non-church courts, that's shameful, Paul says. It shows they lack wisdom, something that they claim to have. It shows they don't understand the wisdom of the cross. That's what we've been talking about in the previous chapters, where the wisdom of the cross being that the sinners who are involved in this disagreement, in this grievance, would gather at the foot of the cross and remember that they're brothers. It changes the dynamics of the grievance when we get there. So what would it look like? What would it look like to solve this in-house, in the church? Let's say you, let's just take the example I gave earlier. You run into the problem of this bad work, right? You did something wrong. Somebody, you invited over to your house, fixed something, they didn't fix it right. So you talk to that person, um, the person who did the work, and you come to a disagreement. You can't agree on what the right thing to do is. So instead of going to court, filing a lawsuit to get your money back, this is just an example, you can come find a trusted brother or sister or a group of brothers or sisters or even the elders and ask for some help. But why? Why would you do this? Why would you take it to the church? Isn't the church just as prone to messing things up as the world? Well, we've got to acknowledge this. This is definitely a step of faith. What's being instructed to us here in God's Word is a step of faith. We're being instructed by God's Word to ultimately trust in Him, to trust what He said to us. You can trust God in this. That's ultimately who you're trusting. But I want to give you some reasons why we should do something like this. First, it's the wisdom, it's putting the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man, choosing the wisdom of God over the wisdom of man. When, when cases are brought before a worldly judge, many of you who have been to court know that it's a lot, it's the main goal is about winning. Winning at all costs in these civil matters. The lawyers will go against each other, they'll pit the people, the, both parties against each other. And that's the wisdom of man, the wisdom of the world. It's about getting yours, about coming out on top, about showing your superiority. But if you come to the church, a place where that blood-bought, brotherly relationship is at front and center, it changes the dynamics of the resolution. That certainly doesn't, doesn't guarantee success, but it does provide an anchoring point to what really matters. So that's the first reason. It's the wisdom It's emphasizing, if you bring it to the church, it's emphasizing the wisdom of God over the wisdom of man. Again, we're just talking about these civil, trivial issues that might arise. Second, it's family versus foes. It says here that it's brother against brother. Knowing we're connected, and we've we've kind of danced around this a little bit. I want to try to hit it straight on. Knowing we're connected as family because of Jesus, it changes the dynamics of a resolution. And having people around you 
These are other brothers and sisters in the church around you, helping you resolve that problem, who understand that dynamic also, that changes things too. I'd probably say the biggest way that this changes things is it becomes less about me and more about we, all of us. Less about my trivial case or getting my rights and more about the greater good of the church. That's why Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Resolving these issues in the church, it helps us work for the good of the whole church, even at sacrifice to ourselves. And that ought to remind you of your Savior, right? At sacrifice to yourselves, we think of the greater good. One One other thought on this, as we think about family versus foes, Keeping it um, in-house, in the family, these types of issues in, in here helps us maintain and strengthen our witness to the world. We are different. Brothers and sisters, we truly are different. That's what Paul's saying. We don't need or want to operate like the world. And that difference is a key part of witnessing to the world that Jesus really is alive and at work among us. Here's the third reason that we would keep these types of grievances in the church is you will judge the world. That's pretty big. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? This is a major point that Paul is trying to drive home. The church... We, brothers and sisters, we're going to one day judge the world and angels. We see that in Daniel 7. You may remember that from our sermon series through Daniel. We're given a place in the courtroom of God. We're joining him in judging and ruling the nations. You can hear it at the end of the Bible too. Revelation 3 verse 21 says this, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Because we are in Christ, because what he has is ours, we will join him in all that he has done and all that he will do. So why is that so important? Part of growing as Christians is being transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's what it says in Romans 12. The way we think and the way that we act must be progressively transformed to be more and more like Jesus. In other words, what we talked about earlier in 1 Corinthians, that we would have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? Our thinking, our feeling, our acting becomes more and more in line with our new nature, with who we really are. So I'm trying to draw these strands together now. Ruling on trivial cases now as brothers and sisters in Christ, as future rulers with Christ, rather than just running to the courts, is operating in line with who we really are. Running to the courts shows we've forgotten what's true of us. Let me try to illustrate this. A friend of mine named Scott, he he shared this with me. I thought it was really good. Imagine this. Uh, Two of my boys, two of my sons, uh, are fighting. Here's what happened. Hard to imagine. It's true. Um, one of them built <clears throat> this beautiful Lego collect, uh, creation, okay? 
and another brother came along and smashed it. So here they are, coming to blows. They're fighting with each other. They can't come to a resolution. Should I then go out into my neighborhood and call my neighbors together to form like an impromptu tribunal to set my boys at odds with each other and hash out the details of this? No. No, I'm not going to do that. That would be a defeat for my family, right? That would show that we couldn't solve even these simple, trivial things. It's just Legos. Come on, figure it out. Aren't a lot of our petty disputes just Legos? That's what Paul's trying to say here. Aren't a lot of the little, petty, civil, trivial things that we argue about just Legos? In the previous chapters that we looked at, we learned that all things are yours. All things. So what about this little trivial case that you have? What are you after? A little money? A little power? It's not to say that the Lego creation isn't a work of the heart and it didn't require some sort of an investment. There's a real loss there. If, if someone had spent time or money doing something, you know, whatever that Lego creation might be, it's obviously just, a, just an allegory. You can put whatever you want in place of that Lego creation. There's really an investment there, an investment of heart, an investment of time, an investment of money. But in light of eternity, it doesn't really matter. That's what Paul's inviting them to. You're going to sit on thrones for eternity with Jesus. Let's get some perspective. And also, it's your brother. We have to respect that. This is what Paul's saying to the church. Here's what an old theologian said. Why go to enemies to get judgment against your friends? Why would you go to your enemy to get judgment on your friend? Why not just suffer wrong or be defrauded? You know, Matthew 5, it's Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us what his kingdom is like, how the citizens in his kingdom that he's come to establish behave. And this is what he said. So this is Matthew 5, starting at verse 38. He says this, Jesus is talking. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is radically countercultural from the way that the world works. How do we do that? How do we live that way? How is that possible? Well, we have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. That's true. And all things are yours. Not, not worldly treasure. You have the greatest treasure. And that treasure, as I've heard other people say, that treasure leads to indestructible joy. The treasure of Jesus. Indestructible joy. So that we don't have to argue about trivial cases. We don't have to grasp for what's ours. We're going to reign We're going to inherit all things. We don't have to grasp for things now. So, here's what we've seen. We're looking at verses 1 through 8 primarily, and what we've seen is that Paul wants them to handle trivial cases in the church. He calls out their lack of God-centered wisdom. He reminds them of their brotherly relationship, and he challenges them to remember that they're going to reign with Christ. And throughout it, he's highlighting a persistent problem. The Corinthians want to do the Christian life 
but they want to do it with the priorities of the world. So, they want, to, they want to be Christians, but they want to live or operate like the world. And he wants to show them what that actually means on a bigger level, so he zooms out in verse 9, 9 and 10. Look at that again with me. So this is chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So here's what he's saying. You may have tasted or experienced something of God's kingdom, but if you live like the world, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if you live habitually like this list of sins, any one of these things, that's a lifestyle for you, it proves in the end that you weren't actually Christian. That's a big deal. These sins are incompatible with the kingdom of God. And this list of sins includes some controversy, doesn't it? To be clear, I want to be really clear about this. All these sins that are listed here are bad in God's sight. Greed is right there, right? That's probably the basis of all these lawsuits. But one of these sins I think we need to talk about today because our culture has tried hard to overlook this particular sin over the last several decades, and that's homosexuality. I want to address it today. I also recognize that even as I say that, this hits home. This hits home for all of us. People we love, people we're related to, people we live with, maybe ourselves. Which is why, looking at what God's Word says, which has our own and others and the world's greatest good in mind, is so important. We just want to see what God's Word says about this. Some people say that homosexuality is only considered a sin in the Old Testament before Jesus came. But here we see it in the New Testament, and we see it in other places as well. Some people argue that the Bible, the New Testament, was locked in Jewish culture. All we need to do is we need to bring Jesus' trajectory of love forward to today. But that's not how Scripture works. The Bible's not bound to a particular culture or time. What God gives us in His Word is His design from the beginning of creation. And His design, His plan for us, is our greatest flourishing as human beings. To love someone is to call them to the greatest path of flourishing. And the greatest path of human flourishing is living according to God's design. Some people say, I'm happy. How could homosexuality be wrong if I'm happy? And I want to say to you, yes, I understand that. I understand what you're saying. Rebellion against God can feel good, even for our entire lives. Jesus calls us, I want you all to hear this, Jesus calls us to make hard decisions now that lead to the greatest happiness, not only now, but beyond our lifetime. When Jesus bids a man to come and follow him, that means we all give up much to follow him. And if you're serious about following Jesus, it should be the hardest thing you've ever done. That goes for all of us. What we have to give up to follow him is different for all of us. 
That's up to you, between you and Jesus. He's calling you to follow him, to pick up your cross and follow him. And so I just want to, even in this moment, I just want to acknowledge how difficult this might be. Some Christians can be so callous toward those who struggle with homosexuality. The call here for all of us, church, is to come alongside everyone who struggles with every type of sin. These sins aren't pitted against each other as greater or lesser. We come alongside all those who struggle with greed, substance abuse, theft, anger, all these different range of sins that are listed here, including homosexuality. Some people say, I was this way from birth. And to that I would say, yes, I understand that as well. We all have dispositions toward one sin or another. Maybe you have a disposition toward alcoholism or sexual immorality or theft or anger. I have my own dispositions towards particular sins. Sin twists our heart in many different ways, and that does not excuse sin. It invites the work of Jesus to redeem us and make us whole. You know, this list that we have here, it's not exhaustive. Paul isn't trying to list out every single sin that's ever been you know, created or done by man. Much more could have been added. But here's what I don't want you to miss. When I talk about this issue and when I talk about this in the context of us being, being in the kingdom of God, Christians have been historically so harsh, even cruel to those who live a homosexual lifestyle. When we do that, we're missing the very thing that this passage tells us. We all start from lives of brokenness. All of our lives need to be transformed by faith in Jesus Christ. He is who we need. He is who you need. He is who we all need, no matter what your sin struggle is. I desperately need Jesus. You desperately need Jesus. And if you walk away from him, no matter what your lifestyle is, You will not be part of the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying, stay. Stay in the kingdom. Stay in the church. Don't leave the church. Come. If you you live a homosexual lifestyle, if you know someone who who loves and lives a homosexual lifestyle, come. Come. Bring them in. Bring them among us. Come take time to get to know us. Come take time to get to know our Savior. Spend time in our holy book. Take a year. Take two. Draw near and see what he is like. What kind of a savior he is. He is the friend of sinners. We invite you in. We invite you into our lives, into our homes. That's the whole thrust of this passage. Bring it in. Bring your messes in. Let's talk about with our problems together with Jesus at the center of it all. Not acting like we've got it all together. We're seeking the life of flourishing that he has called us to. So here's, and here's one other thing that I want you to know. All are welcome here. All are welcome here. But none will stay the same. All of you are welcome here Sunday after Sunday. But none of us should be staying the same. And we won't, we won't be if we're walking with Jesus. If you follow Jesus, he's going to change you. You will start to love his word and submit to his teaching and his ways. He will gradually change what feels natural to you. And that's what we see in verse 11. That's what's celebrated here. We're not the same. Look at verse 11. But you were washed, 
you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Washed. You're washed, all of us, we were washed and cleaned of sin. Sanctified. Set apart as holy before God. Justified. Declared to be right, righteous, have right standing before God. How? In the name of Jesus, by the Spirit of God. We are not who we once were. We have been brought into something infinitely greater and glorious. Praise God. We're not who we're going to be one day either. One day, we will rule with him. We are rulers in training. Here's one way I like to think about it. This is what Paul's inviting us to. He's bringing us into the church to deal with our sins inside the church, to deal with our problems inside the church, because it's inside the church that you're going to experience the warmth of the gospel. It's been getting colder outside. You go outside long enough, your hands are going to get cold. Mine are already cold. I don't know. It's a circulation thing. I don't know. It's always been that way. If I want to get warm, I come inside, get close to the fire, right? When I first walk in from outside, my hands are still cold. I've come inside, into the house. I'm near the fire, but my hands are still cold. But they're getting there, right? I'm warming them by the fire. How are you going to stay spiritually warm? How are you going to keep from living like the world? How are you going to ensure that you're gaining entrance to the kingdom of God? How do you know that you're not capitulating to the ways of the world, but instead you're living as one who has been redeemed, bought by the blood of Jesus? Warm your hands, so to speak, with the community of saints. Come be part of the church. Come be part of what God is doing here. Come inside. That's why the church is so important. Maybe I've said something today that you totally disagree with it, with me. Come inside. Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's see what God's word said. I just want to follow what God's word said. Maybe you've got a real question about your own soul. Come inside. Come on. Let's come inside. Let's warm our hands. Let's do it together. That's why the church is so important, y'all. It calls us back when we're going the wrong direction. It calls us back from stupid lawsuits. It calls us back from stumbling into sexual sin or greed or substance abuse, whatever sin. You, you can turn this into an issue outside of yourself. You can turn this into an issue about somebody else. But really, this passage is talking to me. It is talking to you. It's about holding you in the kingdom of God. And the means by which he does it is the church. The church, one of the means that he does it is the church. The church is meant to help us do the hard things of life including our own sin. Church life can be hard. I know there's a lot of stories about that. I know that you probably have personally experienced that in some ways. But you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. God is at work through his church. He wants us to trust him by trusting the church with our problems. I just want to remind you of this. Jesus was cheated. Jesus was wronged. He was defrauded. He was hurt infinitely worse than any grievance that you or I will ever face. And you know what? He did that. He did all that. He came to this earth and took on flesh and lived that kind of life for you. So that you will never be judged in the courtroom of God, but instead you will be embraced as a child of God, a co-heir, a co-ruler for all of eternity. That is the Savior that we serve. That's the foundation upon which we stand. It's what draws us together, what enables us to deal with all manner of sins, to lay down all manner of lifestyles, to live together in unity. 
because of what he has done for us. So, as Jesus' washed, sanctified, justified people, let's learn to trust each other with the real and messy stuff. Let's lean into our identity as heirs of the kingdom. Let's take up our calling as future rulers of God's kingdom. Let's live that out today. Let's pray. Lord, teach us, teach us these things. We're just able to just graze lightly across some really important stuff here. But Lord, what I pray is that we would press in, lean in to our relationships with one another. Lord, help us to trust one another. And really, ultimately, by doing that, trust you. Help us to live according to your word. Your word is truth. Do a great work among us. In Jesus' name, amen.